Welcome to the Explorer's Roundtable, where intrepid voyagers share tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. Here's your host for the evening, Jonathan Hal Reynolds. Good evening. Tonight at the Roundtable, we have Dr. Benjamin Grant, who is a professor of English literature at Oxford University. He has written extensively about the Victorian explorer Sir Richard Francis Burton, and his other work includes examinations of post-colonialism, travel literature, psychoanalysis, and translation studies. Dr. Grant, thank you for joining us tonight at the Roundtable. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. First off, can you tell us what originally led you to an interest in travel literature, and even more specifically, to an academic focus on the British explorer Sir Richard Francis Burden? Was there something you read as a youth that sparked your interest, or was it a subject you discovered as an adult? I think, I mean, as a child, I don't think I read sort of travel literature as such, but I did read sort of fantasy and science fiction. I was very keen on that. that it's travel kind of enters a lot into that, so something like Lord of the Rings or Star Trek, uh, which I was a big fan of. Um, you know, there's a strong element of travel in that. So I think through the sort of fictionalization of that kind of travel narrative, and I'm sort of coming at it from an English literature uh, background. Um, if you talk about Burton specifically, I mean, I was I was doing a, an MA in post-colonial studies um, in the University of Kent, and I was actually wanted to be doing sort of post-colonial literature. I was interested in studying Indian literature um, at the time. I realised in doing that that I didn't really know enough about the colonial period. I think it's something that a lot of British people find, you know, when they're exposed to um, the study of colonialism and colonial literature. Um, later in life that, well, I didn't know anything about this. We were not really taught it at school. Um, so it, it comes as a surprise. You sort of think, well, that's something I really should uh, know about. So I, I kind of went, thought I'd look into the colonial period. And actually, Burton was one of the subjects I was going to look at in my PhD. It was a, originally a wider um, sort of thesis on cultural translation specifically. And I was going to look at Burton's translation of the Kama Sutra that he, well, it wasn't his translation, but the translation he was involved in. So that was the first thing I did um, in my PhD was looking at that. Um, and then I realised it was just, you know, Burton was a very big subject and I, I needed to sort of spend more time on it. So I'd say I sort of came into the travel literature side of it somewhat by accident, I guess, through that, that, you know, sort of expanding to look more at his travel um, literature. Burden was an incredibly fascinating Victorian figure who was not only an explorer, but was also a geographer, translator, soldier, spy, and poet, among other things. In your own work, you were particularly interested in how he engaged with the non-European world in his writings. Can you give us a brief overview of your research of him? Yeah, so I mean, I think that is that was central to, as I say, I sort of came at it through a post-colonial studies background, and being interested in in colonialism and discourses of um, colonialism. And I sort of wanted to look at Burton's different kinds of writings. So obviously, you know, there's the exploration, travel literature, but that intersects with other things. I mean, particularly ethnography, anthropology, which really had their origins in the travel literature of that period. And um, translation is the other thing, of course. Um, so looking at those different genres of writing and how they intersected. And I mean, I saw his self-representation as being central to all of those. So I was kind of combining post-colonialism with more psychoanalytical approaches in looking at his work and thinking about how he was representing himself in relation to the, the other other cultures and people um, that he was interested in. And, and I became particularly fascinated with his his creation of an alter ego. Uh, he travelled in disguise um, in India, in the Middle East. So this alter ego of Abdullah I became very interested in, of what was the relationship between Burton and Abdullah. Um, one of the chapters of my book is Burton slash Abdullah, you know, sort of thinking about that 
that relationship, but it's obviously extended through my whole thesis. Did Burton engage with the non-European world in the spirit of mere curiosity, or like so many other explorers of his time, was it with the intention of conquest and with the perspective that other cultures were inferior to the Western world? Again, I think the question's interestingly phrasing this idea of mere curiosity. I, I kind of um, was, that was something I was very much interrogating in my work because people often say of Burton, oh, he was genuinely curious and enthusiastic about the people that he traveled amongst. And that somehow set against his obvious involvement in imperialism and, and celebration of imperialism and that, that in his racism as well. He's, hopefully, we'll go on to talk about this more. He's a, he was a very um, racist thinker and, and actually. You know, at the forefront of racialist thinking um, in the 19th century, he was a co-founder of the Anthropological Society, which was where a lot of racial theories were being promulgated. Um, so I think you know, so, so people sometimes say, oh, you know, they celebrate his curiosity, but they also say, well, he was also a racist. But actually, I think those two things really go together. You know, what's the relationship between his curiosity uh, for other cultures and peoples and, and his racism? Um, I think you know, that's another key thing that was interesting me um, there. So I think it's it's not really possible to separate those two things out in, in Burton's writing and in wider kind of travel literature. Throughout his lifetime, Burton partook in some fascinating expeditions, such as being one of the first Europeans to visit the Great Lakes of Africa in search of the source of the Nile. And one fascinating story from his biography is about how he disguised himself and took a journey to Mecca at a time when Europeans were forbidden there. According to Burton's writings, if Europeans were found out, they were executed. Can you briefly tell us the details of that story? As I say, I'll come against this from an English literature background, so I, I kind of read the writing in a sort of literary um, way. So I see Abdul as a kind of character um, that he invented, and he invented it, first of all, in India. So he, he started off he, um, his career working for the East India Company in Sindh, which is now in Pakistan, and it was at that time a recently conquered uh, part of, of British India. And, and he worked as a spy there. And he disguised himself as this figure, Abdul, and kind of went amongst the local population and sort of found out his his information, um, his intelligence. Um, so, so it really that character started as a spy um, in British India. And when he was in British India, as, as people probably know, you know, he was Berta was a, a very good linguist, and he learned a lot of languages, and he became very interested in in Islamic um, culture, in Arabic culture, and he kind of wanted to to go and do the pilgrimage to Mecca. I think as part of this character, you know, that Abdullah would want to go and do the pilgrimage, so therefore Berta wanted to, to do that um, in disguise. So he then went to the Royal Geographical Society and kind of sold them the idea that he'd go and do some exploration in the Middle East, um, you know, sort of part of the, the desert which hadn't been explored before. So that was kind of his pretext to the Royal Geographical Society, which was bound up with this, this more personal uh, project of, of undertaking um, the Hajj. So he sort of went, went and did that. But when he arrived in Alexandria, he was annoyed to find that his persona was one which was itself subject to a lot of racial um, abuse. He kind of was, I think it was a Persian he was disguised as, and people didn't like Persians um, in Alexandria. So he, he then sort of assumed the persona of someone from Afghanistan, um, which would be less 
subject to less racial opprobrium. So again, he was kind of reinventing this character and he was also disguising himself as a doctor, as a bit of a quack doctor. So he'd go around kind of selling these medicines. And so, yeah, he was really hamming up this character, shall we say, and, you know, kind of um, celebrating his his ability to go in disguise and um, to create pride in, in managing to do it. So it was a big, a big thing that he, he sort of, it was he presented as a kind of adventure where he was going off and, and doing this. And that idea that he would have been executed otherwise, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think it was part of the story, you know, that this there was a, a huge amount of danger should he be um, unmasked. Um, you know, he would be in danger of being killed. Are there any photographs of him dressed as this character of Abdullah? Um, there's pictures of it. I mean, if you look in the there's a, a, an etching um, in the pilgrimage. It's personal narrative of a pilgrimage to Al Medina and Mecca is the title, which I think is a, a great title in itself. This idea of a personal narrative of a, an exploration. Burden is said to have mastered 30 languages by the end of his life. And he is famous for having penned the first complete translation of Arabian Nights, which was published in, I believe, 10 volumes at the time. What do you think it was that drew Burden to this particular work? Was it merely the themes of adventure and romance, or was there something else that inspired him? I, mean, I think the adventure and romance fitted it, you know, came into that. I mean, you have to remember at this time, the Arabian Nights was really seen to be very representative of the Middle East and of Arabia. So people would confuse the stories of the Arabian Nights with the real place and feel that when they arrived in Arabia, they were arriving in the Arabian Nights. And I think Burton uh, definitely felt that. I was going to read you a bit from the... Um, from the introduction to it, where he says, this is Burton in the introduction to the Arabian Nights. This work, laborious as it may appear, has been to me a labour of love, an unfailing source of solace and satisfaction. During my long years of official banishment to the luxuriant and deadly deserts of Western Africa and to the dull and dreary half-clearings of South America, it proved itself a charm, a talisman against ennui and despondency. Impossible even to open the pages without a vision starting into view. From my dull and commonplace and respectable surroundings, the jinn bore me at once to the land of my predilection, Arabia, a region so familiar to my mind that even at first sight it seemed a reminiscence of some bygone metempsychic life in the distant past. There's a lot going on, I think, um, in that. You know, he's kind of presenting himself as someone who's himself in the Arabian Nights, being borne away by the jinn, and also someone who's kind of almost like from a from a past life is identified with um, Arabia. So he's kind of seeing all of that in his his reading um, of the Arabian Nights. So there's that personal connection uh, to the text, but he, he was also an anthropologist, and he saw it very much as an important anthropological document that you could learn about. Um, Arabia in the Middle East from reading the Arabian Nights. His translation is widely thought to be fairly unreadable um, because he was kind of trying to put different kinds of English into it to, to, to capture the different kinds of Arabic which were in the original. Most people absolutely hate the translation, but uh, Jorge Luis Borges liked it a lot. He was a big fan of uh, Burton's translation. So Interesting. Divided opinion. You did a study on Richard Burton's and Rudyard Kipling's relationship to England, and you and your co-writer proposed the term expatriatism. Can you briefly tell us about your term expatriatism and how it relates to these two figures? We, we sort of thought of this term ex-patriotism ex um, is how it's written. So, you know, it's combining 
patriotism with the idea of the expatriate. And I think Burton and Kipling are both figures that we might think of now as having been expatriates, um, as, as that word is commonly used. It wasn't a word which is used in that sense in the 19th century. But I think there's, we have to say that patriotism is something which is, is, is thought of as being a connection to the, the homeland or the, you know, the land of your um, birth. But at the same time, it's, it depends on a disconnect from the, the land of your birth because it's a love for that land. So in order to love it, you have to be apart from it in some way. So there's a kind of paradox of the idea of, of patriotism. So that's notion that you have to be expatriated in order to, to feel patriotism. And I think this was particularly this, this kind of uh, dynamic was really driving um, British colonialism in the, set, this, the relationship which colonial people, as they called themselves, had to England as something which is kind of like an absent home. So they have a, a, a strong sense of a, a connection to England, but without necessarily feeling English and in a sense, you know, in a way of living there or identifying with um, British or English customs. Um, so that idea of expatriatism, I think, was very important for for the British um, sensibility at that time and for the imperial sensibility. So there were different ideas of of colonialism, um, and, and Kipling was certainly somebody who you know, he grew up in India. He spent the first few years of his childhood in India and went back there and saw himself as being a colonial rather than an Englishman. But he was a staunch advocate of the British Empire and of Britain's rule um, in the world. So it was a way really of thinking about about that. And I think there's parallels between Burton and uh, Kipling in that sense. I mean, Burton grew up on the continent in Italy and France, and it, it's quite interesting. We were looking at the way in which, um, in his account of that, in his autobiography, um, he he sort of was equating um, his childhood to a colonial childhood in India in very kind of obvious um, ways. So there's a kind of reading back of the colonial situation onto his childhood. Um, I think in that. So. It's always fascinated me that all the well-known British explorers of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, from Burton and Kipling to Percy Fawcett and Ernest Shackleton, were all members of scientific organizations like the Royal Geographical Society. What role do you think the RGS played in the encouragement and advancement of exploration at that time? Yeah, I mean, the Royal Geographical Society is, you know, played a very central role in exploration of that time. And as I said earlier, Burton got the support of the Royal Geographical Society to undertake his exploration in Arabia and continued to get their support when he was doing his exploration you talked about um, in East Africa, the search for the source of the Nile. Um, that was supported by the Royal Geographical Society as well. So it, for that period of his life, Burton was a professional explorer. And when he ceased to be supported by the RGS, you know, he, he had to stop being an explorer, really. I mean, he started working for the uh, British government as a consul in different parts of the world and continued to explore on an amateur basis. Um, so he wasn't then, you know, professional. I mean, you needed a lot of money to undertake exploration at that time. You know, you needed to hire a lot of people to, to help you um, do it. So it, it wasn't something you could just go off, really, and, and do. Um, it was seen to be something which was scientific and you were gathering scientific knowledge, intelligence, perhaps. I do think there's an overlap with that spying um, role in the context of the uh, British Empire. But I think there was a, a conflict within the RGS between the explorers on the ground who felt that they they knew best because they were there and, and you know 
were, were on the ground and the people back home, the sort of armchair explorers, um, as it were, who were gathering that information from the explorers and then collating it and doing something with it to produce um, scientific knowledge in a different format. And Burton was certainly very scathing of those armchair explorers. You know, he felt he knew best as the person who was a, an eyewitness and knew the languages and could uh, interact with people um, and, and had actually seen the places that were being described. So yeah, I mean, I think there's the RGS. I mean, the other thing, of course, is, as I said, the um, anthropology and ethnography had their origins um, in that kind of writing and that kind of work uh, um, as well. So, I mean, Burton was very keen on gathering what would now be thought of as anthropological information on his travels, which wasn't wasn't particularly mainstream at that time. He was quite unusual um, in being interested in finding out um, about the people and learning the languages wasn't something that a lot of explorers did. Um, so he again, that was that was another way of which he differentiated himself from other people. Um, you may know about his his controversy with uh, John Hanning Speak that he was uh, um, he conducted an exploration from the source of the Nile um, with, and Speak actually found the source of the Nile when he went off on his own when uh, Burton was ill and he found the source of the Nile. And Burton didn't believe that that was actually the source of the Nile and they had a, a huge controversy um, about this, which kind of culminated in um, Speak killing himself before a big meeting of the uh, British Association for the Advancement of Science, which I think was accidental, but yeah, this is all, um, <laughs> oh, all bound up with the RGS. Burden is not the only explorer you've written about. You did a study about the French-American explorer, Paul Duchayu, who was the first European outsider to confirm the existence of gorillas and later the pygmy people of Africa. The article you wrote was about how he brought together gorillas and cannibals in his account of West Africa. Can you give us a brief overview of this story and what you discovered in your research? Yeah, so I mean, this was something, again, that started with my PhD. I mean, there's a chapter of my book on gorillas and cannibals. So I, I was writing about sort of wider discourse, which really started, I think, with uh, Dushayu. So I then wrote a kind of follow-up article that was looking at his book, Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa, which is a, a great book um, to read, a really fascinating one, um, where he does bring together gorillas and cannibals. I mean, I, it's not something many people know, but the gorilla was only first science described um, and named in 1847. So Dushayu then went to Africa to look for gorillas and to provide the first eyewitness accounts of them, which he he duly did, um, and they were rather sensational accounts of these kind of you know breast-beating gorillas um, standing on hind legs and very kind of human-like um, in a lot of ways. But he, and he also had these kind of incredibly sensational descriptions of cannibalism in that book as well. So those those two things were kind of coming together in that book. And my argument was that that really forged a connection between the two, which culminated, I would say, in the figure of King Kong, who's, you know, a gorilla-like um, figure, but also, I think, quite cannibalistic. He's, he seems to be eating uh, people, and obviously gorillas are vegetarians, but King Kong doesn't really come across as a very vegetarian um, gorilla. So I was kind of tracing a history um, of that. And, and it really kind of goes through Darwin, because Dushai's explorations were just before um, the publication of Darwin's On the Origin of Species. So that was obviously the, the figure of the ape was really being picked up um, at that time in, in the press and in the, in the wider um, discourse, as well as in, in uh, scientific um, writing. And I think it was 
yeah, Dushai's representation of the gorilla was the one which was picked up. And I think it was also linked to the cannibal um, in that writing um, as well. And I think in Freud, someone else who links the gorilla and the cannibal in his account of the primal horde um, in Totem and Taboo, which is the, the origin of human society as uh, Freud sees it in the the overthrow of the primal father by band of brothers. And I think the, the primal father could perhaps be read as a cannibalistic gorilla. Can you tell us about the term interior explorations that you've coined in your work and also expound on this application of psychoanalysis to exploration in general? It, well, I, mean, I didn't coin that word. It's actually uh, Dushayu's phrase interior explorations, but by that he was meaning the exploration into the interior of Africa, um, into equatorial Africa from the coast. But I was kind of twisting that, I suppose, to mean a kind of interior exploration in the sense of a psychological one. So I was arguing that Dushayu, it, it was very much a kind of dream narrative, uh, the explorations and adventures of equatorial Africa. So it's kind of about his own interior um, psychology um, and landscape. And, uh, you know, I think this is very central to my thinking about that kind of literature, that it's very much about the self and about a, an exploration of the, the interior um, of the self, as it is about the exploration of the interior of the continent, in that kind of great white space um, in the centre of Africa that Dushai was um, exploring. Do you feel that the greatest value of exterior exploration is the interior exploration we take as individuals? Uh, possibly. I'm, I'm not sure if it's, maybe it is the greatest value, but it's also a problem with that if you're kind of going out and, and exploring and you're, it's all about yourself. I think there's there's a problem um, with that. So I think it's something that needs to be questioned. I mean, I would say that you're always going to be exploring yourself through travel um, in some way, but I think it, it's good to be aware of the fact that you're doing that and to be to, you know, to be questioning that um, and the ethics of that um, as well. I mean, I think there's a, there's a problem, and certainly with with Burton and Dushayu, um, that they weren't particularly bothered about <laughs> about the ethics of that. They were quite happy to be, um, you know, celebrating themselves and creating themselves through that exploration, which was also being done in the interests of um, colonialism, very directly in the case of those two writers. So. You've written some in regards to the examination of empire. From the Romans to the British, exploration has played a major role in the building of empire throughout the centuries and millennia. What is it that you think drives humans into the unknown and often in the spirit of conquest? Is it all Darwinism and survival of the fittest on a macrocosmic scale, or is there something else going on? Well, after what I've said, you might you might gather that I'll be a bit sceptical of the idea of Darwinism on a cosmic scale. You know, as I, said, I think that Darwinism was very much bound up with racial thinking and the way in which Darwinism was picked up. Um, so this idea of the survival of the fittest being something that you can kind of project into human society and certainly racial um, thinking was, it was something that was done a great deal, you know, so people would uh, excuse, if you like, empire and the, the genocide um, of other people on the on the basis of the survival of the fittest, and particularly if you look at something like the um, the Native Americans, um, it was very common to sort of see that the, the Native Americans were bound to disappear in, in the face of this superior race. So I, I certainly am very sceptical of that, that idea of um, Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, um, as a kind of explanation um, of that. I think it's quite, yeah, I mean, certainly that, as I said earlier, I mean, that kind of curiosity for the unknown, I think is difficult to separate from self-aggrandizement and 
the you know, that kind of imperialism um, and colonialism, the looting of other places, or the you know the kind of um, enriching of oneself through um, occupying it in in the writing of this period, certainly. And I think there's, there's different kinds of um, travel narratives have different um, sort of dynamics, I would say. One of your other academic interests as a scholar has been in the short form genre of aphorisms and the proverb. Do you have any favorites that relate to exploration that you would share with us? Uh, I, I'm not sure about exploration, but I mean, I, I did actually write a section on travel um, in my book on the aphorism and other short forms where I talked about Matsuo Basho, who is the uh, Japanese travel writer who also originated the genre of the haiku, which is a very short genre um, of poetry which has, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, yeah, it's a very short, regular um, form. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, was, I, I was arguing that his, his, uh, this genre of the, the haiku is bound up with travel and it's a, it's a genre which is in, implicitly linked um, to travel. So it's a form which is used to capture a fleeting impression of something. So it's like a, a traveller's impressions um, being captured in this, in this uh, little form. So this was Basho's final haiku that he wrote on his deathbed when he was tra traveling um, appropriately enough. On a journey ailing, my dreams roam about over a withered moor. See, so, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exploration as such. I mean, Basho was very keen on the rambling. Rambling was a word that he used um, rather than exploration. And I think, it, as, as I said earlier, you know, sort of different ideas of travel you might look for as alternatives to that sort of European exploration, um, which is a very sort of self-aggrandizing one. Lastly, one question I like to ask all our guests is if you have a book, film, or documentary recommendation for our listeners, something that they can continue on with beyond this episode. Well, I could do the Basho, I suppose, the narrow road to the far north is uh, how it's often translated. That's a good a good travel account with lots of haiku in it and different kind of um, exploration, uh, perhaps, and um, people might be used to reading. To all you listeners, you can learn more about Dr. Grant on his Oxford University webpage, and be sure to check out the wealth of articles and books he has published through the years, such as The Aphorism and Other Short Forms, and Postcolonialism, Psychoanalysis, and Burden, Power Play of Empire. Dr. Grant, thank you for sharing your perspective with us here at the Roundtable tonight. It was a fascinating discussion, and we wish you all the best in your academic endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode. We'll see you next week, back here at The Explorer's Roundtable. The Explorer's Roundtable was created to provide a place for explorers to share their tales of discovery and adventure and engage with scholars in fireside discussions relevant to the science, history and literature of exploration. If you have a story worth telling, we invite you to share it with us at explorersroundtable.com. 